Good morning, Evanston Bible Fellowship. It is a great joy to be with you again. For those of you who have not been here over the last several weeks, my name is Kerwin Rodriguez. I am a professor at Moody Bible Institute, and I've had the joy of sharing the Word of God with you all uh, during this month of February. Uh, It's also my great privilege to let you all know that I will be here for a little bit longer. Some of you may may have been praying otherwise, but... The Lord has not answered your prayers. Uh, I will be back again. And so uh, I want to thank again the elders, uh, Pastor Danny and and others who have uh, graciously invited me to return uh, until at least the end of May. And so I will be with you once again. Well, on this morning, I feel the need to ask for prayer, not only to pray with you and for you, but to pray for myself. I mentioned to some people this morning that I woke up in a bit of a health funk, and I have definitely been feeling it all morning, and so I'm asking you to pray with me for the Lord's help. It's on days like this that I am reminded of the great truth that all preachers should remember, and that is that we're being invited into a work of God. This is not primarily our work, and so we need to ask God to do a work for us this morning. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you again for meeting us here. We ask, Lord, that you would graciously help us, help me. Lord, I know already that you've been helping me to give me strength, to give me energy, but Lord, I need more of it. I need more of your mercy, more of your grace. And Lord, most especially, we need a word from you. We need to hear from you, God. And so we ask with open arms that you would speak a word to each of us. Minister to us, I pray, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This past week, I had dinner with a friend with whom I am not that well acquainted. We live in the same building, and we often exchange friendly remarks whenever we pass each other in the hall or attend our condo association meeting. Our dinner and conversation was enjoyable, especially when we shared, surprisingly, our personal experiences from the past few weeks. My friend remarked, isn't it interesting that if one area of your life isn't at peace, it can affect the rest? Whether it be your professional life, your physical life, or your social life, remove one block from your whole self and the rest begins to crumble. It was an incredibly astute observation, probably made due to his own experiences over the last several weeks, but the image itself was striking to me. Our lives being one whole structure made up of blocks that are interconnected and interdependent. It illustrates that human desire of being whole. Another way of putting it is being at peace. So having learned what he had been going through over the past few weeks, this friend of mine, by the way, does not know the Lord, I asked him, so how have you found wholeness? How have you found peace when the blocks of your life have shifted in their place? His answer was honest. I haven't. There's a biblical word for the wholeness that we all desire. It's called shalom. We could easily translate the word peace. 
The idea of this word is wholeness or completeness. As one scholar put it, the biblical concept of peace is not just the absence of conflict or war. It is the presence of something better in its place. It is that state of wholeness where you and I can be at rest, at peace, without any holes in our complex structure, our life. If a block of your life is removed or cracking, it is that state of being that will remain unshaken. Shalom. Peace. It is what we all desire. It is that experience of life that every person longs for. And yet it feels so unattainable. Think back to the metaphor of a structure made up of blocks. Too often the human experience is not one of peace or shalom. It is more like a game of Jenga. The wooden blocks are removed and the whole structure shakes and threatens to topple over. I don't know if you've played Jenga before. I have. I've never quit a game of Jenga because it was taking too long. The game tends to be very quick. It only takes just a few short moments for those key blocks to be removed, and all of a sudden, the whole thing shakes and falls over. The game will always end. The structure will eventually topple over. If our lives are built like a Jenga structure, all of us are just waiting for the whole thing to topple over. Blocks will be removed. Wooden parts will be slid from their place. Our life has to be built differently if we're going to experience the state of wholeness, that state of peace, that state of shalom. Let me ask you, how does your life structure feel at the moment? Is it at peace? Do you feel as though your life is in a state of conflict, a state of war? Do you feel as though blocks are being removed and the whole structure threatens to topple over? Now, I don't want to assume anyone's life circumstances. There might be some of us here who feel quite secure. There are many of us here this morning whose life is intact. The game of Jenga has not started and all the blocks of our life are in their proper place. I should ask you then, what is keeping your structure whole? If your life is secure because those individual blocks are set firmly in their place, I should tell you that they probably won't remain there forever. Eventually things will begin to shift and things will begin to fall. When the block of your professional life dislodges because of a bad performance review or an uncertain future within the company, what will keep your structure whole? When your relationship ends or you can no longer connect emotionally with your spouse, what will keep your structure whole? We all long for peace. We all long for shalom. We all long for wholeness. What will keep our lives from toppling over? What will keep us in a state of peace? Perhaps these were the images that the prophets had in mind when they prophesied about Yahweh's Messiah. And they said that Yahweh's Messiah would be the cornerstone for the city of Zion. That city of peace. That city of wholeness. 
When there is a cornerstone, the structure can be secure. If a block is removed or if it has cracks, the cornerstone will bear the weight underneath. The biblical prophets, God's Messiah was going to be the cornerstone of peace. And they used another image to describe this Messiah. They said that this Messiah would be a king of peace. His reign would be a reign of peace and tranquility, a a reign of shalom in that city of Zion. The human desire for peace was, in the imagination of the Israelite people, answered by the coming king of peace. Since you and I share this deep desire for peace, I am struck by a particular exchange that Jesus has during his life and ministry. It's actually not our primary text. We're going to go there eventually, don't worry. But there's this exchange that Jesus has with an envoy from John the Baptist. John the Baptist was in prison. After being a supporter of Jesus, he perhaps had now become skeptical of Jesus. He was the one who preached repentance, who announced Jesus' coming, and now here he was in a jail cell asking, wondering whether Jesus truly was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. He sends his envoy to Jesus, and these individuals find Jesus, and they ask him, John wants to know, are you the one we've been waiting for, or should we wait for someone else? Should we look for someone else? In light of our shared experience, in light of our common need for peace, that question has stuck with me all week. Are you the one we've been looking for, waiting for, or should we look for someone else? This past month, we've been asking questions of God. We began with the question, is God really good? Last week, or the week after, we asked, Is it any good being good? And then the last week, we wondered aloud, what is God's plan when things aren't going well? And at each turn, we've asked this question and responded to it from the scriptures. And in some ways, God has given us a great deal of freedom to ask these questions boldly. But this question is a little different. I want us to ask the question boldly, but what we find when we ask this question, are you the one we've been waiting for or should we look for someone else? We find out that God turns the question against us. And he asks you and I, am I the one you've been waiting for or have you turned to someone or something else? That is the question that I want before us as we open up the word close to the end of Jesus' life to Luke chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles open, turn back there to the gospel of Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, beginning at verse 28. Once you're there, you might notice that this is a familiar passage, but typically one that we pay attention to at another part of the year. It's a triumphal entry, maybe before Easter on Good Friday or the weeks 
prior to that, this might be the passage that we turn to. And yet I want us to listen to this passage, recognize this story for how it addresses our very question. Because here in this story, Jesus takes up that very question. He takes up all of those images, all of those Jewish expectations for what the Messiah would bring for the people of Israel. And it is all coming to a head here in this entrance into the city of Jerusalem. So I want to consider this story here. If, you've, if you and I had been reading the book of Luke, we might notice that there is a drastic change coming within the second half of the Gospel of Luke. All of a sudden, things were going slowly. Jesus is traveling all throughout the region, and then he goes into a sprint. All of a sudden, at the second half of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is sprinting down a hill toward Jerusalem. It is as if all of the momentum of Jesus' life and ministry and teachings are coming to a head in this city. The city of Jerusalem, of course, was an important aspect of Jesus' ministry. Who is this Jesus? He is the Messiah who is coming into the city of Jerusalem to bring about the peace that was long expected. But the people don't know that just yet. In fact, when we read this story, we are surprised by all of the things that happen here, and yet we should recall those images and expectations from the Old Testament. Look again here at this passage. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Verse 29, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples. It's quite a bit of detail for such a short passage. Luke the evangelist is causing us to wait, to slow down. He's pointing at the signs along the way. This way to Jerusalem, just so many miles ahead. This way to Jerusalem, you're almost there. Jesus and his disciples are almost at that city, the place where Jesus' ministry will come to culmination. And he sends his disciples on forward, and he says, Go into that village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, which no one has ever yet sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now again, the evangelist is giving us quite a bit of detail here. He's telling us what Jesus tells the disciples, and then he is going to recount for us what the disciples tell the owners of the colt. It's as if the evangelist is telling us these details are important here. Why does it matter that Jesus would be entering into Jerusalem, not on foot, but riding on a colt? You probably remember the answer. If you think ahead to Easter, you might know. But these are symbols. These are religious symbols. These have a great deal of meaning. We understand symbols in our own world. In fact, here's one from a historical example. Uh, it's said that George Washington, whenever he, as soon as he became president, decided to go throughout the 13 colonies to show his face, to make himself available to the people. Uh, but George Washington rode uh, within a carriage, now, that's not quite presidential. I mean, this is the first president of these new, this new country, this new America. 
And so what he would do is that on the road, he would ride in this carriage, but as soon as they were about to enter into the town or the village or the city, he would get out of the carriage and get on top of his white horse. And the image, the symbol that would be known across all of those colonies was our president, George Washington, riding strong and powerful atop that white horse. He would pass through the town, immediately get off of his horse, and go back into the carriage. It was a symbol. It demonstrated the fact that this was the president. This was the one who led us to victory. This is the one who is going to lead our young nation to greatness. But when we think about this image, the cult, it is helpful for us to think about George Washington and that white horse, but it's also helpful for us to notice some differences. A cult is not as powerful as a strong white horse. Uh, It doesn't quickly give us that image of power and stability and might. In fact, it does the opposite. It is a symbol of humility, a symbol of a gesture of mercy and grace. Jesus' kingship is one of peace. It's unusual and unlike anything the people or you and I might have expected. But Jesus tells the disciples, go and find a cult that has never been ridden on. And when you get there, the owner will ask you, why do you want to use this? And you just respond, the Lord has need of it. Watch the contrast. Here you have an animal that is a humble animal, and yet you see the power of Jesus. It comes to us in two ways. Number one, we know that we see that he knows exactly what the disciples will expect. It's not that Jesus had scouted out the area before that. He had gone into the city when the disciples were asleep, and he goes searching for a cult, and he pays the the owner ahead of time and says, hey, look, my disciples are going to come, and you just let them use this cult. It's going to be really cool. Jesus doesn't do that. This is the first time he is entering at this point in his life, he is entering in the city, into the city with a particular mission in mind. He's not coming in and out of the city at this point in his life. So Jesus knows exactly what the disciples will find. And guess what? They find it exactly as it is. They find this cult that has been tied and they ask the owner, may we use this cult that has never been ridden on? And, he, and the owner says, yeah, but what do you want it for? And the disciples say, the Lord has use of it. The second way that we see the strange contrast between a humble king and a powerful king is that the owners say, nothing. The disciples take the cult. When the king of kings has need of something in your possession, you give it to him freely. This is the king, the Messiah. And Luke goes out of his way to demonstrate that Jesus is truly the king. This religious symbol, this theological symbol, is worth remembering back from the prophet Zechariah. If if you would like, you can put a finger there, holding your place in Luke chapter 19. But I want to look at a couple of passages in Zechariah. Zechariah is one of those prophets. You don't have to turn too far back. Malachi is right before Matthew, and then you run right into Zechariah. 
But if you're there, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 4, says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall sit again in the streets of Jerusalem, each with, its sta- with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its city. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of the people in, de- in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Verse 12, for there shall be a sowing of peace, of shalom. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give its due, give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This passage might be familiar to you, of course. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of the donkey. This is what should have been apparent to the disciples as they're making their way to Jerusalem. Is this now the time, Jesus? Is this now the time, Messiah, when you will bring about the peace that we've all been waiting for? The disciples, of course, recognize this. And so what do they do? They quickly mount Jesus on this cult, and they throw their cloaks on the cult so that Jesus might sit on on it. And as they rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as they were drawing near, already the way down, on the way down to the Mount of Olives, they are all singing with a loud voice, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Their proclamation, their testimony, their confession is that this is the King we've been waiting for. This is his procession into the city. Whenever I think about processions, I think about championship parades. We haven't seen one in a while here in Chicago. The last one we saw was for the Chicago Cubs. Do you remember that? It's 2016. Many of you who are here in this city likely remember. Was anyone there? A couple of people were there. I'm surprised that Not more people were there, because if you look back at the pictures, it's as if everyone in the city was there. My wife, who teaches downtown in the South Loop, I remember that day, they they canceled the afternoon of classes so that the kids could see some of the parade. It was a big deal. Everyone was there. That's not what this parade is like. Not everyone is there. This should surprise us because many people are making their way into Jerusalem because they are preparing themselves to celebrate the Passover. And yet, it is only the disciples who are welcoming Jesus, walking alongside of Jesus, declaring, here is our king, here is the one we've been waiting for, here is our peace. It's only his disciples who are going about this grand gesture, singing 
these great praises. In fact, there are some Pharisees who are walking along the way. And the Pharisees look over to Jesus scornfully and say, Will you please tell them to shut up? Please tell them to be quiet. Their singing is offensive. Tell them to stop it. And Jesus says to these Pharisees, even if I stop them, these stones will start singing. Something grand is happening here. Something incredible is taking place. This is what the people of Israel had been waiting for. Something messianic is taking place. The king of kings is walking into that city of Jerusalem. But only his disciples know it. Only his disciples welcome him. Are you the king we've been waiting for? Or should we look for someone else? The Pharisees obviously were looking for someone else if they were looking at all. And I also wonder what were the disciples looking for? What kind of expectations did they have for this king of peace? They look back at Jesus and they notice that he is not celebrating or smiling with them. He's weeping. He's crying over the city of Jerusalem. These, of course, are not tears of joy. These are tears of deep sadness. Look what Jesus says as he weeps. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, If you had only known how I would gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. But they were looking for someone or something else. The interesting thing about our question and our desire for peace is that we look to all sorts of things to guarantee it. Even the disciples who were celebrating Jesus probably did not know what kind of king Jesus was going to be. For the disciples, of course, they assumed that peace, shalom, was the absence of conflict or war. And so how was God going to bring about this peace, this time of, of ceasing from conflict? He was going to remove those sinful enemies of the people of God. The Romans would be taken down. They would be free again to be their own nation. But throughout the Gospels, Jesus is saying something to us. First to his disciples, of course, and then to us. That is to say that the enemies that we face, the, the, the thing that threatens our peace and well-being, is not external like a foreign nation or a foreign government. The thing that threatens our peace is our own sin. And the result of that sin, which is death. We live in a kingdom of death. We live in a space that threatens our well-being, that threatens our peace, that tries to remove those pieces 
and shake us to our core. But Jesus walks into Jerusalem to say, I will be your king. And I will guarantee your peace, not by destroying the Romans or the foreign government, but by offering my life. By offering my own blood for your life. I will guarantee your peace through the giving of my life for you. Your wholeness, your well-being is guaranteed by the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb, the Passover lamb. Jesus came not with, not on a white horse, not seeking a grand crown, but instead a crown of thorns. It's striking to me that our peace is guaranteed through the violent death of Jesus. Jesus says, you want peace? You want wholeness? I will offer it to you. I will be your king of peace. You only have to accept me as your king. Are you the one we've been waiting for or should we look for someone else? What have you looked for to guarantee your peace? What have you turned to to secure your well-being? If it isn't the cornerstone, the king of peace, you will be shaken. You will topple over. But if you want peace, if you want wholeness, if you want to experience shalom here, now, yes, as we expect and await our return of the king, it can be yours. Those blocks might be removed. Cracks might appear. But you will be able to stand if you rest upon that cornerstone, King Jesus. If only you had known if only you had received me the peace that would have been upon you, Jesus said. Are you the one we've been waiting for? Or should we look for someone else? Let's pray. King Jesus, we bow before you. Lord, we need your peace. We need your shalom. We cannot guarantee it on our own. We cannot guarantee it by means of other things in our lives. The only thing that can guarantee our peace and well-being is you. Help us to bow before you as our king. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. O oh, Father, amen.